Are there any questions left? <laughs> Jose. Jose. Or are they what? The question was about jhana practice. And jhana is the Pali word that's often translated as absorption or levels of concentration, samadhi. When you read the texts, the suttas, the Buddha spoke often about the development of jhana as a basis for insight. So this certainly should not be understood as being in conflict in any way. It is a different practice in that it really emphasizes the one-pointedness, the fixedness, the steadiness of mind, as opposed to the seeing of the characteristics, of the three characteristics. But as you well know by now, the stronger the concentration, the stronger the steadiness, the easier it is to really see the three characteristics on a deeper level. Just as there are many uh, methods of vipassana, Manindraji once told me that after his original practice with Mahasi Sayadaw, he went and studied over 50 different ways of doing vipassana. You know, so there are, there are many ways to cultivate the foundations of mindfulness and many methods. In the same way, there are some different methods of cultivating jhana. Very traditionally, you read the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification, there are 40 traditional objects of concentration. And so it can be done with the breath, it can be done with the Brahma-viharas, it can be done with what are called kasinas or the colored discs. It can be done on the reflection, reflections on the Buddha-dhamma-sangha. It can be done on the non-beautiful aspects of the body. There are many, many methods. There also seems to be some variance with what different teachers call jhana. Not surprisingly. Um, I mean, the way Deepama would describe, I mean, she was a master you know, of all eight jhanas and, you know, very high levels of attainment. The way she described it was when you are in a jhanic state, you don't hear anything. If somebody hit you on the head, you wouldn't feel it. Well, in the way that most of the people I know practice it, it's not quite that. Now, whether it's a difference of depth or it's a different state altogether, I take refuge in my very favorite mantra, who knows? (laughs) I mean, if one has the chance to practice in the different ways for oneself, then then one would know. 
And so Aya Kema, who you know was one of she was a, a German woman uh, who became a Buddhist nun later in life, had a nunnery in, in Sri Lanka, and did a lot for the revitalization of the nuns. She was a very strong teacher. She developed or learned one particular way of jhanic practice. Um, and I did just a little bit with her, uh, with a student of hers. Upandita taught it through the Brahma Viharas. Um, with those two ways of practice, the experiences seemed quite similar. But as I say, there are other teachers who more in the way that Deepama described it. That's kind of a long answer to to this question of jhana. The development, though, of it in any on any of its levels uh, is helpful. The one caution, and I have seen this happen, is that it really can open open one to For some people, it opens them to tremendous feelings of rapture and bliss and happiness. Not everybody has that level of intensity, but it can happen. It's like opens those channels. And I've seen people really get caught by that, you know, get attached to that. Uh, so it's not a reason not to practice it, but it's to understand that that can happen but liberation is through non-clinging. <laughs> Old age. <laughs> Well, just to clarify, which you you probably understood, it was it was more a uh, my statement was more about the conditions under which I'd like to practice rather than a relationship to practice. Um, for me, what keeps the practice vital is doing it, you know, rather than remembering it. Um, and that's why I just have tremendous respect and admiration and sympathetic joy and you know all of those feelings for uh, these retreats uh, because I know from my own experience that really what keeps it alive is just that resolve, that determination to settle into it and do it through all the ups and downs. And we know that there are many an image which I used uh, in some interviews, which I th- has been really helpful for me. And, uh, at one point I was uh, just teaching in Hawaii, and uh, after the retreat we went for this long hike on the north shore of Kauai into Kalalau Valley, and a beautiful, I mean, it's 
11 miles along the coast, and it's up to the top of cliffs and down into rainforest and then up to the top of cliffs and down into rainforest. And it was, it was a very hazardous, uh, arduous uh, hike. In fact, at one point there had been a mudslide, so the trail had been washed away, and as Sharon was walking on the trail, she slipped and was basically about to fall, like thousands of feet into the ocean. And somebody who was just by, just happened to grab her. It's the last time she walked in there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point of the story, <laughs> beside the fragility of life, it was a very interesting hike because when we're on top of the cliffs, there was this magnificent panoramic view of ocean and cliffs and coastline. You know, it was fantastically beautiful and far, far-reaching in the view. Then we went down into the valleys, into the rainforest, and it was dark and dank and wet and enclosed. And we'd go back up to the next cliff, and it would be open and expansive, and then down. Well, practice seems to be a lot like that. You know, we have sittings or days when it's really open and wide, and then times when it feels very enclosed and we're struggling. What was instructive about that image of the hike for me was that even as we went you know, up and down and up and down, all the time it was going forward. But if the mind was simply in comparing, oh, it, it was clear and now it's not. It was open and now it's not. And the mind was caught in the comparing mode rather than the faith mode. So then there was a lot of happiness or disappointment in the faith mode of understanding and this is applying it to practice understanding that all the ups and downs are an unfolding you know it's it's the path of awakening and it will involve many ups and downs but it's always moving forward that gives a whole different perspective to the hike and to the to the journey Your question and my response uh, really has to do with something I learned very early on from Munindraji, my first teacher. Because people would ask him a question, and then he'd just answer whatever he wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Often in not much relationship to the question. (laughs) So I don't know if I accidentally hit on what you meant. I mean, just I just want to go to reiterate because it's so important. And this is something the Buddha said that when we practice, wisdom grows, and when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. You know, so it's not something we get and have. It's really, I don't know, it's it's like an alive process within us. And it's the practice itself which keeps it vital.
Whose is it? Wouldn't we all? <laughs> okay, I'd like to just approach that from a few different sides. I hope I can remember them all. The <laughs> one is just a little bit of a discussion of uh, some of the different meanings of anatta, selflessness. Because we can begin to understand it in different ways. Or have a doorway into it in different ways. One meaning of selflessness uh, is understood through a increasingly refined perception of impermanence. So, for example, the planning mind comes. And in those moments when the mindfulness is strong, you know, and the concentration steady, we might note the planning mind, and if we don't get lost in it, can see that that's a moment thought which is there and then a moment later it's gone. And as our practice deepens, the perception of change gets more and more refined until we are really tuning into the momentariness of phenomena. And through seeing that, we see that nothing is lasting long enough to be called self. Because in the very moment of noticing it, it's gone already. So that's one doorway, one avenue. It's not that we are always seeing the process of change that precisely. But that's the direction the practice is going in. Another meaning of selflessness is that things are ungovernable. That is, do you sit there and invite the planning mind to come? Do you invite the pain to come? No. Things are arising out of conditions. When the conditions are there, phenomena arises. When the causes and conditions change or disappear, the phenomena disappears. And so we begin to see it's happening not because of one's will or determination. It's happening out of causes, out of impersonal causes. So the ungovernableness is another understanding. You know, and after so many weeks of practice, months of practice, in different ways, you must have gotten either glimpses or really strong tastes of there's not much control over what's going to come up. <laughs> you know. Okay, so that's that's another meaning. Okay, this is at another level now. One of the misunderstandings about selflessness, you know, I'm thinking there's no self, there's no I, there's no me. People often mistakenly extrapolate that to mean 
there's no continuity to the process. But there is a continuity. Because of this, this arises. Because of this, this arises. And so the fact that you're seeing a pattern emerge is totally lawful, and that's exactly how it is. Because of certain experiences here, these kinds of thoughts arise. Because of these kind, because these kinds of thoughts are here, these kind of experiences happen, these kind of events happening. So there is a continuity to the flow. Selflessness means that that flow of continuity, there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. That if you wanted to use the word self or I, which we do conventionally, and it's totally fine to use conventionally, really what it's referring to, what we're saying I in in this conventional way, really is pointing to this flow of conditioned change. The radical transformation of understanding is to see that it doesn't refer back to anyone. There's no one behind it. That's all there is. But this this takes a lot of attentiveness and mindfulness because first to see the changing nature of the more distinct objects like sensations or sounds or sights or the breath. Then more subtle objects, like thoughts and subtle mind states. And then to see the flow-like non-self nature even of awareness. Because that's often the last place that we identify with, where we create a sense of observer or witness. Well, I'm the one who's witnessing all the change. And so it's unhooking from that identification as well. Spring. I see the Buddha Dharma for all suffering beings, and that is everyone. Um, I think in the movement of the Dharma from one culture to another, that's a historic movement. You know, and it's just happening here. It's like it took hundreds of years from Buddha Dharma to go from India and then to Sri Lanka and then Southeast Asia and, and China and Tibet and Korea and Japan. And that happened over hundreds, thousands of years. And as the Dharma infiltrated into, permeated those cultures, 
we're at the very, very beginning of the practice, beginning to enter into the culture and all the different um, It's not exactly the word I'm looking for, but all the different subsets within American culture. So we're just at the very beginning, and each each person who comes to the practice and really understands it then brings it back to all the people they're in touch with. You know, and I see that's how it spreads in a very grassroots kind of way to touch all of the different communities. Um, For me, the one of the uh, most powerful social issues, I would say in America, maybe more in the West, or uh, and the conditions for for suffering is racism. You know, it's huge. It's really, as you well know. Um, And where are its roots? Its roots are in the mind. It's the root of fear. It's the root of delusion. It's the root of ignorance. It's the root of greed. It's all the forces that cause so much suffering in the world. And that's a very, that aspect. I mean, it's just huge. And so what can we do? We can begin to first become aware of the suffering in the same way that we do it within ourselves in the practice, become more aware of it in all its forms in society. The more open we are to it, the more compassionate response we have. The more we purify our own minds of those forces which cause suffering, the more we can help others do it. And so that's where I see the great value or gift of the Dharma uh, in so many levels. And it's one of the things that really um, something's coming. Sometimes it kind of takes a while to find the... (laughs) I mean, the richness for me of the bodhicitta practice, of realizing that we're not practicing for ourselves alone, but our very motivation, not only realizing that our practice will inevitably help others, which it will, regardless of what, whether we have the motivation of bodhicitta or not, the practice can help but be of benefit to others. But to bring that motivation right to the beginning, to the front of practice, for me has really opened up the space of more consciously seeing, okay, how can this work in society? And what can I do? And in what way can the Dharma be served? And I think this is the challenge for all of us.
once a year I teach uh, a, re- a retreat for people of color in uh, New Mexico with George Mumford, who's used to be on the board here of IMS. He's an African-American man um, who's worked a lot and lived at CIMC in Cambridge, Cambridge Insight Center. And it's a really interesting course because there are African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans uh, all sitting together. And, of course, each of those cultures is very different. But what's so incredibly moving to me, because both through the interviews and then in talking at the end of the retreat, the stories and the situations of suffering are so outside of the usual range of my experience. And so I just feel it as this tremendous gift, as just the slightest little window into a world or some worlds that I don't have a lot of contact with. And it's just, just... that one little thing, you know, can open up for me or, you know, for oneself. Just some very important understandings of what's going on in our society that, that normally we may not be aware of. So it's big. That's a big, it's a big question. I think the Dharma... serves it very well because it really addresses the core the core issues behind it you know, which are the forces in the mind of greed and hatred and delusion Right, the question was, why did Buddhism turn or move through the rest of Asia before coming much later to Europe and the West or Africa? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably proximity was one, one reason. You know, those were the neighboring countries, and so there's, you know, there was kind of a natural movement, you know, to to what was near. Um, there's a very uh, interesting book on the history of Buddhism by Stephen Batchelor. Uh, what is it called? The The Awakening of the West. The Awakening of the West, and he's he's a wonderful writer, and he. He just talks about the whole, uh, particularly of the bringing of the Dharma to the West, but tracing it back to the ancient times.
the question was about free will and whether it's a useful concept or we can even talk about a will or a free will or um, I don't think it's a useful concept because unless or until in the discussion uh, people define what they mean by free because it's a word like God you know people could be using that word in many different ways and so to begin to try to have a discussion about the meaning of it without knowing how one is using the word is endless and I remember as a college student spending endless hours in just that discussion. I think that the Buddhist model, the Buddhist Abhidhamma model, in some way synthesizes the more Western notions, now speaking loosely, of that argument of free will or determinism. Because in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist notion, things are understood to be conditioned. So will itself is a mental factor but it's arising and conditioned by the associated factors. Within that flow of conditioning, if it's understood, different choices are available. When we don't understand, then we are simply acting out the habits of conditioning, and there's no freedom in that. So from the Buddhist perspective, freedom comes from the understanding of how things are conditioned and what leads to what. Now, I kind of see the Buddha in one way as being a master baker. You know, there were all these ingredients for the cake of enlightenment. You put in this and 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 you, in this and you stir And so all of the various lists are really the ingredients. You add together faith and confidence and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom, and you let each one of those do their own thing. But there's no self in there, there's no I in there, it's just these factors. The Buddha was able to see what qualities of mind lead to what. He said these certain qualities lead to suffering. Fine, people can choose to do that. These qualities of mind lead to awakening, lead to happiness. I probably use that image in my mind because I'm a greed type. <laughs> you know, kind of the cake of enlightenment, okay. <laughs>
Well, as I understand that story, which is quoted in many different contexts to make different points, as I understand the meaning of it from the sutta, the Buddha was really referring to himself in that way as being, as the spiritual friend he's talking about. And when we just understand another sutta where he said, those who see the Dharma see the Buddha. Right. So the real spiritual friendship is with a Buddha who is embodying and teaching and expressing the Dharma of liberation. I don't think he meant, as sometimes is said, that as valuable as you know this more more uh, more ordinary way we use the word sangha you know and spiritual friends among us i don't think that's what he meant as being the whole of the holy life not that it's not important because as you see and you will see even more when you leave the support of like-minded people doing the practice is tremendous. I mean, it's it's rare and it's tremendous and it's really helpful. But I think he was really talking about the Buddha mind. Yeah, the the question was if I could say something about um, being in relationship, in intimate relationships, and how does that fit into the practice? Is it support? Is it not a support? And what about the benefit of celibacy, living a celibate life in the world? Is that helpful? Is it not helpful? There's one... Uh, example the Buddha gave, which I think is really the foundation for exploring that question. He gave the example of a hermit who was living in rags in a cave. You know, the most austere, renunciate lifestyle, but whose mind was filled with desire and wanting. He contrasted that with somebody who was living in very luxurious surroundings and their mind, they were enlightened, their mind was free. The circumstances are not the key issue. The key issue 
is whether there's attachment or desire in the mind. Now, before we rush off to luxurious surroundings, (laughs) it's not to say that everybody who lives in luxurious surroundings is liberated. And it may be that for many people, that is what feeds desire. And leading a simpler lifestyle or a renunciate lifestyle really frees the mind from desire. But the point is, where are we looking to determine? It's so easy, well, a relationship is good or relationship is bad or whatever in terms of a spiritual life. I just don't think that's the place to look. I think we need to look in our own minds and to see what qualities are being cultivated. And to do that very honestly. And sometimes it's hard because it's very, very, very easy to rationalize our desires. You know, and make lifestyle choices based on that rationalization. And we do this. We, we do it a lot. To the degree that we've developed some stronger awareness and mindfulness, we begin to see ourselves more honestly. And so even if we still do it because the force is strong, it may be that we're no longer deluding ourselves, but we actually know what we're doing you know, and why. And when the mindfulness, the awareness is really strong, we could see the various forces at work. and really choose on the basis of what we see to be wisdom in terms of what supports the letting go of grasping and greed and anger and fear. And it's really different for different people. And there's all the the various karmic conditionings. Now there's lots of stories from the Buddha's time of Couples in relationship, both with strong spiritual practices, really supported each other in it. And lots of other stories where they drove each other crazy. <laughs> when, particularly, if you read the Psalms of the Sisters, you know the enlightened nuns. <laughs> they're really, they're, they're really funny <laughs> as as they tell their stories. You know. Of course, it reflects the culture of the time. So, you know, but I've been washing dishes long enough. (laughs) Time to leave the household life and, you know, and have to see from the inside. Sorry, I can't tell you what to do, (laughs) except to look carefully. You know, what's being cultivated, what's being supported. And just one further teaching in that regard, which I always found quite striking from the suttas. And it's in contrast to a popular, to a popular myth or idealization or interpretation of, you know, follow your bliss. 
follow your heart. Ajahn Sumedho, I don't know whether it came out in the tapes, he had a wonderful teaching about this. He said, it's not that we should follow our heart, it's that we should train our heart. It's not everything that comes up in our hearts, as I'm sure you've noticed, <laughs> is not always that skillful. You know, there's a lot of desire and passion and wanting. And, and it's not to say the energy of passion, you know, it, let me put it this way, it's not to say that a passionate energy is unskillful because passionate energy can be used in the service of many things. But it takes a training of the heart so that we really begin to make wise choices through seeing, okay, where do we where do we devote or what do we dedicate that passion and energy to? And I think also, it's really wonderful to have a mindful, creative, almost artistic notion of our lives. It's like we create our lives through the choices we make. We fashion our lives. And so to have that sense, yeah, I can, let's be a Michelangelo. You know, what can I create? What can I fashion? Can I really create, fashion something of beauty and of wisdom with all life as the medium? And with that spirit, I think it invites a lot of exploration. And so just, just in the very, the very narrow area, although important in, the, in your question of, you know, well, what, should I be in relationship? Should I be celibate? You can really experiment. Take time. You know, what would it be like to be in the world and celibate? And just to watch, to see. Take some time and see what that's like. Or if one has been living that kind of life for a long time and you know it really feels there's something to be learned in the other, then engage in relationship. But it's always what what qualities of mind are being cultivated in it. There are a few um, very obvious reminders or wake-up calls. One wake-up call, and I've mentioned this I think several times during the retreat, one wake-up call is the feeling of rushing, which happens a lot in our lives. 
you know, we just get caught up in the momentum of our activity, whatever it is, and we just have that feeling of toppling forward in it. That feeling of rushing is great feedback. It's like a mindfulness bell saying, not present, not balanced, not settled back in the body. So to really pay attention to that. A much louder mindfulness bell is times of suffering. You know, when we're really caught by something and we feel that contraction, we're caught up in some emotion, not problem is not that the emotion is there, but the relationship to it. Are we really caught? Are we identified with it? You know, or not. Or caught in an obsessive thought pattern, you know, which is suffering. Sometimes we are not aware of what we're being caught up in until we feel the suffering. What's important at that juncture is to see the suffering as an invitation to investigate rather than blaming, blaming others, blaming oneself, getting lost in a lot of judgment about it. I mean, it's one of the things over the years which has been really noticed a change in my practice. And I think I mentioned it in one of the question periods of just how suffering has become it just piques my interest. You know, what is going on? What's happening here? That that becomes the question. You know, what's happening? And, and some of the deepest insights into the Four Noble Truths can happen in the midst of our very day of our everyday lives if we're looking in that way. The first noble truth is alive and well <laughs> in the world <laughs> and in ourselves. And so there's just all this opportunity if we see it in the right way. What kind of retreat? Uh-huh. Shorter. Again, I think this is a reminder of an example I think I used at some point during the course. My experience in practice, and this it's kind of a rough metaphor, but you know, it's like digging a ditch. And at first you have to do all the hard work of really digging it. You know, and you have to loosen the stones and get out the roots and it's hard. It's real hard manual labor. Once the ditch is dug, but then you don't attend to it for a while. It gets filled in with all sorts of junk, you know, leaves and rocks. And, but cleaning it out again is much easier than digging it the first time. And so 
having done the hard work that happens in a long retreat, where you have the time to settle in and really touch some very deep places of conditioning, of habit, of mind, a lot of habits of suffering. And then you work it, and you see it, and you understand it. That's like digging out the ditch. You come back for a 10-day, a weekend, a day long. It doesn't take that long right, to clear that out and to really come to a place of depth. So I see them as being extremely valuable. You know, and it's 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 an essential reminder. There's something very mysterious that happens because I don't know that you share this experience, but when I'm on retreat, this just seems like the closest contact with reality that I have in my life. It just, I'm really here to whatever extent that I am because the mind is not distracted as much as I am out in the world. And yet when we're out in the world, it's almost like the meditation space becomes, we can barely remember, you know, we're so involved in the busyness of our lives and the relationships and the work and the speed and, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that place of reality. <laughs> and so it's so incredibly seductive, the world. I mean, it is, that's the nature of samsara. You know, you, you probably have seen the advertise, advertisements for samsara perfume. I mean, that's just what it is. You know, it seduces us into believing the storylines and our involvements in on that level. So to have periodic reconnection with the depth of understanding that can happen on retreat, where that begins to fall away and we begin to touch reality on a much different level, free of story, free of the content of our thoughts, touch much more fundamental things, things much more um, connected to the root of suffering and the possibility of freedom. And so it's just to know our culture is not supportive of awakening. It's not, it's not. There aren't pagodas on every hilltop, you know, and the whole culture is about consuming. Not the whole, but, you know, major, major piece of it. Uh, and busyness and speed and sort of come back to these spaces where we reconnect I just see it as essential, you know, and then actually we have something to bring back to that world.
So the question, as I understood it, was how to really open to suffering in a real and connected way rather than seeing the suffering through the veil of delusion in which we're not really connecting with it. Something like that? (laughs) I think there's actually an easy answer to it. I think in your experience of suffering, if you're not really suffering, your awareness of it is probably diluted. (laughs) As you said, um, we do like our insights into suffering to be nice. (laughs) You know, to be balanced and economist, and there's suffering, and I'm seeing it. But usually one's experience of suffering when we're really exploring it from the inside, it's not like that. We're really suffering. You know, we're really feeling the contraction. And from that place then, the investigation, okay, how is this happening? What's going on? How am I relating to it? Um, It's sort of my, it's like my image of dying. You know, it always, my picture of it is always extremely comfortable, lying in bed, you know, just, oh yes. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> but There's no one way to do it. Kind of the 
It's always helpful to keep the body healthy when we can, to support that. And the Buddha talked about how health is the greatest gain. And so it's very helpful. How one does that really varies from person to person. And there are just times when, for whatever reason, it's appropriate for a person to go out, to walk the three-mile loop, to jog, to whatever. There are other times, either for the same person or for a different person, with that, it, it would just be the most disturbing thing to do. And it's really a time in practice not to do that and basically to stay just sit and walk and sit and walk and not to leave the discipline of that. I've been in all of those places in my practice, you know, at different times. So it's not that there's one way. And here's where a teacher is very helpful so that we're not simply doing things out of habit but to actually get some feedback, okay, what's skillful at this time of the practice? And at the same time that we want to be supportive of our health, we can also get obsessed about our health. And sometimes... Well, there's another story of... Uh, it was one of the nuns who was an older woman, totally devoted to practice, and she was just getting weaker and weaker, And but she would not give up. She was just doing the practice. And a lot of her compatriots were saying, you know, just take it easy, rest a little bit, you know, take care of yourself. But she just had this amazing determination and resolve, you know, for liberation. And she kept on and, you know, as with many of these stories, there's a happy ending. You know, and after many years of that kind of practice where her body was, she wasn't particularly taking care of her body. She became fully enlightened. And it's said, as you know, in the story that in that moment of enlightenment, kind of the radiance of the body, the energy of the body came back. And in that line, or in that way, in that approach, one of Upandita's favorite lines was, if you die while you're practicing, it's fine. <laughs> that was of no concern to him whatsoever. <laughs> it was not the issue. He called it dying in the saddle. <laughs> I never quite got to that point of, but it's just to point to the range. And at different times, different approaches are appropriate. And
I think that the care of the body in support of care of the mind is where it's at. But the body, no matter what we do, no matter how we care for it, is going to get older, it's going to decay, it's going to get weak. Liberation is not to be found in the body staying a certain way. It's not to say that we shouldn't take care of vehicle for us, you know, and as we're strong and healthy, we can use it in very beneficial ways. But in our culture, there is often a kind of obsession with the body being a certain way, and it just ain't like that. You know, that's not where the freedom is, so it's finding that balance. And I hope you're hearing this as a balance. I'm not suggesting that we don't take care of it. We should. But it can be done in the support of freedom of mind, freedom of heart. One of the most skillful things I found is to keep the lips touching. <laughs> At least more than I might be inclined. It is hard. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult. But I think it's a tremendously rich arena for practice. Um, I mean, it's a lot of the things you mentioned. You know, being in the body, paying attention to the effect afterwards. The, the point that seems the most interesting to me is, and it's so illuminating, it's really illuminating, is to see if we can catch the motivation behind our speech. It's all right there. Yeah, there are there are a couple. One is I think learning to pause could be really helpful, and it is it is just a habit, you know. So instead of jumping in right away, 
You know, we, we take that moment or two. And in that moment, the motivation is often revealed. You know, it's right there. I think applying the precept around right speech is really helpful. Because if we have taken the precept to avoid wrong speech, so that means not lying, not harsh speech, not kind of gossip, and not useless speech. And if that's in our mind, if, if we are really trying to abide by that and train ourselves in that, just as if we had taken the precept to avoid, to not take intoxicants, you know, not to, to not drink alcohol, or whatever, whatever form we take that. The desire might be there, the impulse might be there, but having taken the precept the, with commitment, the precept itself jumps in at that moment and is a training device to awaken us. And that's why the precepts as a vehicle for training are so powerful because they stop us in a moment of impulse from doing something that might be unskillful. Applying that to speech, so we're really keeping in mind, yeah, I'm not going to speak those kinds of words. We'll see our impulse to. And it gives us more of a chance of seeing the impulse and not doing it. Yeah, that would be great. To all, to all the precepts. All 226. <laughs> okay, just a couple more questions. Meaning which thoughts to indulge in and which not? with it in the sense of seeing which patterns of thought um, are unskillful. And then that being the impetus for letting go, for not getting identified with them. Just as an example, and again I think it's one that uh, was mentioned for me, a really helpful, helpful um, seeing uh, was in working with uh, the thought and feeling of guilt about something that I had done. Yeah, and I was just this feeling, and thoughts kept coming and coming and coming. And then at a certain point, I was really the suffering piqued my interest. I was, how, what's happening here? And in looking more carefully, I saw that guilt, it was a trick of Mara. 
There was a trick of the ego. There was a lot of self in guilt. It was like, I, 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 how bad I am. And I realized that had nothing to do with the wisdom of understanding. Yes, that action that I had done was unskillful. The wisdom could be there in the understanding without this negative ego trip. And so when I saw that, you know, in the, in the Buddhist texts, often the, the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. And so that I started, I started doing wagging the figure at Mara. You know, and so every time guilt came, Mara, I see you. And that recognition of it being an unwholesome, it was an unwholesome, unskillful thought pattern. It really, I mean, it was just tremendously freeing. It was no longer seductive. And so that's one example. The key is, and you know this very well, in seeing an unskillful thought pattern, not to judge it. Because that's just tying another knot. It's to see it with wisdom. It doesn't imply, I'm so bad for having it. Okay, last question. Uh, they actually don't imply anything more than uh, one person who used to live here in a larger community who was quite allergic to living indoors. And so he just kind of built those little places to sleep in outside. So they were just particular to that one person. Um, but of course there is a long tradition in Buddhism of people living off in the woods, you know, in little huts. Um, I think it would be great to do. Those huts are a little low. <laughs> I kind of like to be able to stand. <laughs> um, I have a, a. There was a range of experience in India. Some places living quite isolated, not quite a hut some huts within the walls of a monastery. So hut and isolated didn't go together. But I had experience of both hut and isolated. Uh, when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya at the Burmese Vihara, uh, the monk there, with as more Westerners came, 
decided to build these these huts, and so uh, being Burmese, uh, he built them. the The dimensions were six by six, but he built one for me six by seven. <laughs> And at one point, with, with another teacher who came, we were living in these huts, you know, six by six, six by seven, two people. <laughs> so, if you had any problems, <laughs> you can put them in perspective. Okay, why don't we just sit for a couple of minutes together? As you make this transition from retreat space to the world, in some way what I think is most important is just remembering how beautiful and precious the Dharma is. It's out of that that the, the whole unfolding of the journey happens. just came across a, a haiku by Basho, who was one of the great haiku poets of Japan. The temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. It's really sweet. (laughs) 